Hello and welcome to the comics podcast with all of the sexual chemistry of uh, a cyclops and tread carefully. <laughs> There's a lot of sexual chemistry in this book. Uh, all the sexual chemistry of I'm gonna go with a cyclops and a lady with some horns. Do they have sexual chemistry? Do they oh, not? I th- sorry, I thought <laughs> you were talking a different about cyclops. Fard. Yeah, it was <laughs> well, really more of a triclops. <laughs> let's just hold on. I've got a lot to say about Fard. <laughs> I have a lot to say about Fard as well, but let's save it. Um, this has, of course, got the runs. This is recording at night, very unusual for us. After dark. Yes, it's uh, got, got the runs after dark. My least favorite uh, medical scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I tell people what the name of our podcast is, they're always like, hmm, gross. And I'm like, oh yeah, we shouldn't have named it this. But today we are discussing, continuing our discussion of Brian K. Vaughn. We are discussing his acclaimed work, Saga. 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 Uh Sagat. Remember him? No. He was a boxer. Street Fighter? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure if, uh, if you can call this his signature work because like, I don't know, it's certainly the signature work of this like era of his career of, or of like the 2010s for him. Sure. Well, he, this is one of the, well, I guess he is writing two or three series at this point. I looked this up. He Before. yeah he launches this one and then Paper Girls is not too far behind and then the Private Eye is also not too far behind and also we stand on guard he does at some point he does Barrier at some point while well, this is still ongoing so no choice but to stand on guard <laughs> now who's this Don Guard yeah. How do you know about him? <laughs> um. I know that he wrote uh, an extremely sexual love song with his brother, and it has me standing for days. Huh? Oh. Like that Megan Trainer thing. That's so... No one knows what that is. It's very current and now. <laughs> deeply interesting. Um, but speaking of deeply interesting, you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> and it's time for us to talk about Saga, a book... Um, well, I'll start by reading this quote from Brian K. Vaughn that I saw, mm. um, where he says, This is an original fantasy book with no superheroes, two non-white leads, and an opening chapter featuring graphic robot sex. I thought we might be cancelled by our third issue. It, and it is, it's an interesting book. I'm not sure who the market is exactly for this, really. And it, it is weirdly has been a big hit, right? Uh, it is a huge hit. Uh, this is like, I think at the start of the series, I said that it wouldn't be a uh, like, huge stretch to call Brian K. Vaughan, like one of the most important creators of the 21st century uh, in comics. And this comic for sure is a big reason why. Um, my compendium that I am holding here in my hands has... <laughs> it's blurred out because of your camera. <laughs> It looked like you were holding up some illicit material. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's certainly some illicit material in here. It has three pull quotes on the back cover. Two are from individuals, and one is from a publication. Do you want to try and guess what any of those are before I tell you? Okay, one of them is Stephen King. No. 
that that's more uh that's a scott snyder thing for sure but uh no um okay and in, are either of them comics creators yes okay um is it like is it robert kirkman nope <laughs> it's the most insane collection of three names you could possibly have is it stanley one, one of the most remarkable and inventive pieces of science fantasy ever to emerge from the comic medium says neil Gaiman. alan moore <laughs> sure the last great book i read was catching up on saga the graphic novel series an incredible world in which to get lost says jk Manuel miranda (laughs) (laughs) and the kind of comic you get when you when truly talented superstar creators are given the freedom to produce their dream book says entertainment weekly says breitbart (laughs) uh the juxtaposition of alan moore and lin-manuel miranda is hilarious two titans of their respective industry (laughs) truly but but also i think speaks to like the the like four quadrant weird appeal of this (laughs) book that like two people who i have a harder time imagining more different sensibilities between (laughs) imagine the two of them hanging out but they agree that saga uh, is the bee's knees so yes um Something that is very early on in the Wikipedia article that I wanted to discuss is that it was described in solicitations as Star Wars meets Game of Thrones, and I would contend <laughs> that it is neither of these. I, um, yeah, I have seen it compared to Star Wars, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, uh, the New Testament, <laughs> insanely. <laughs> um, I, I have seen it. Everyone seems desperate to figure out what it's like, what the perfect X meets Y is to describe this book. There is not one. <laughs> it is like, like calling it like staggeringly original or something like that. Like it's not, I don't know if original is the right word, but it's certainly unique in that like between the the like, I think the problem is that people compare it to very like epic sagas and it is called a saga, (laughs) but it does not have the sensibility of like self-important, like sweeping grandeur. Like it's, it's very, as much as it's set against the backdrop of like this intergalactic war, it is about a small family and it is about like the, the like mundane, um, like ups and downs of early parenthood as much as it is about anything else um and it's just like it's too self-aware it's too tongue-in-cheek um and and like what even when it does go for like those like sweeping vistas of like breathtaking you know something that you would expect to see in like a lord of the rings movie it's to be like and here's fard and he has a micro penis actually (laughs) wow that's what you call micro penis hate seeing macro penis (laughs) things as big as you are a proportionate micro penis um yes that's the thing is it and it feels very brian k vaughn yes um early on i kind of was like well since it's like an entirely mythical setting then like brian k vaughn can't do the brian k vaughn thing like he can't (laughs) reference pop culture but instead it only has empowered him (laughs) to make like (laughs) oblique references to pop culture and be like See what I'm doing? It's like space. Uh, I don't know what's the thing Brian K. Vaughn would reference. Uh, well, I, Smokey I don't know if and the Bandit. 
<laughs> yeah. I don't know if we get to it in these issues, but like space WWE is like a big part of the story for a stretch. Right. Um, like space phones certainly are are out there. Like the first time we meet, uh, I can never remember his name, but like the Secret Service agent from Agent Gale. Yes, Agent Gale. The first time we meet Agent Gale, he's like, oh, sorry, dude. My phone is doing this, this freaking auto update thing, and now I can't find any of my apps. It's yes, like... exactly. Oh, the one, I, <laughs> the one I wrote down was that there's a joke about when Alana reveals that she has this gun. It's like, have you seen the statistics on parents that keep firearms in the house? Oh, yeah. And even like in the first issue, when he's like, do you need a healing spell? We agreed. Pain management is right. like, yeah, it's, it's so, yeah, I agree that this, like, this is the first book of his we're covering that started after I became, like, was reading comics weekly. Um, and I was really excited about it because it was like, all right, new Brian K. Vaughn book. He hadn't put anything out since Ex Machina wrapped up. And then I, like, read the solicit for the first issue that was like space opera, like in the Star Wars mold. And I was like, is this gonna be good like how is he gonna write this if he can't be like and actually did you know this about new york (laughs) (laughs) yeah like the architecture of new york yeah Yeah, so he takes like what an 18 month break more or less from comics up between the end of ex machina and the start of this yeah i think we talked about in the last episode that he talks several times about how he's gonna like work on an original graphic novel like a book length ogn which (laughs) then i don't know what what happened with that but it has not since materialized and then and then just suddenly yeah is like back on the scene with saga in uh, in 2011 or 2012 right and um something we should mention uh again it's a co-creation much like his previous work um with fiona staples canada's Mm -hmm. own Mm -hmm. who kind of like I mean, like, maybe it's not fair to say that he, like, gave her her big break, but, like, was not a widely known artist before this, correct? That's, yeah, definitely not. In fact, I think, like, she, so she had done some interiors for um, 2000 AD, I believe, and a couple of, like, independent series, but I'm pretty sure that, like, the, the number of comics that she had, like, penciled or done, like, done interior art for was like in the single digits um as far as like her professional career and then she was also doing like some coloring work um I, yeah i don't i don't think it would be unfair to call her an unknown at least as far as like the kinds of people who would be like yippee a new brian k vaughn book um i had never heard of her certainly and to go like from from working with tony harris who was already like a superstar in his own right and and kind of being in a position where, you know, it's Brian K. Vaughn doing a, 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 like a, an independent creator-owned series, which he has like to this point batted a thousand on. He could probably work with any artist that he wanted to. So it's it is interesting. I think that he went not not like I don't know. It's not it, obviously if you've ever seen Fiona Staples art, and if you're listening to this, I hope that you have. Um, but so it's not like he took a step back in terms of like the quality or the ability of the artist but in terms of like the name recognition or like the industry status like definitely to go from tony harris to fiona staples at the time 
was to go from like one of the like most marketable names in the industry to someone who like most readers wouldn't have heard of right and maybe maybe unknown might be a little unfair she was nominated for an eisner in 2010 for best penciler slash inker or pencil slash inker team for her work on north 40 which is a wildstorm comic right um so maybe maybe that's what there's some story of how they got introduced to each other right so yeah she worked on um not north 40 but a different title uh that was mystery society yeah written by um steve niles i think his name is yeah who who is like a mutual friend of brian k vaughn's and introduced them so i'm not sure what exactly the the story is with that other than that that that's how they met i'm not sure if it was because like vaughn was talking to steve niles about how he's like working on a new project and kind of like has an ear out for artists or or what but that is the connection. Yes. Um, so her role in this, like she, so she is like in on the ground floor for sure. She's credited with designing the cast, the ships, and the alien races, which is interesting because when they, one of the other like weird pieces of lore about this book is that it has, it was apparently something that Brian K. Vaughn has like, as wikipedia puts it he conceived saga in his childhood (laughs) so basically the idea is that he created this like fictional universe and just sort of like built it out with characters which is like not unusual but like what do you think that looked like 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 what ideas made it from like him 10 years old into this book yeah, I think um, not like obviously not to take anything away from Staples as far as like the the design aspect because obviously uh, like the look of the series is is all her. But I think that like when when he says that like or or when they credit her with designing all of the characters, they're still working off of like a written description from Vaughn. Like I know for sure not to not to keep going back to the Fardwell. <laughs> <laughs> but I did read an interview with her, uh, and I can't blame her for this because this would be my response too. Where people were, people keep being like, "Fard, whose idea was Fard? Who decided to put in the freaking micro penis cyclops?" And she's always been like, "Oh yeah, that's just like exactly what Brian wrote." Yeah, there is. <laughs> it's, it's, in a letters page, there is he like includes a snippet of the script. That includes like a very like complete and detailed description of Fart. <laughs> and it's just like, sorry, Fiona. Yeah, so so you know, that's not to take anything away from from Fiona Staples, who uh, does a ton of work on the series, and I'm sure it puts a ton of work into like the design of all the characters. And of course, on the flip side, you have a well, character and she also like... she helps with the production of the book. Well, yeah, yeah, um, like like the manufacturing. Yeah, because like. It's her product that goes on the spine to hold the book together. Mm-hmm. The staples. Yeah, got it. Um, <laughs> anyways, on the flip side of things, you have a character like... Uh, we, we recently debated how to pronounce this character's name. I believe it is Goose. You say Gus, but the little well, seal boy. Um, uh, I can't talk about him yet. I'm not ready. <laughs> we'll talk about him more later. He is a character who... Uh, like staples designed whole cloth and then like showed to Vaughn at some point and he was like okay 
<laughs> this dude rocks. He's Blind, going in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know. He's not yeah. blind. Uh, yes. Uh, if there's anything that you can say universally about all uh, all saga readers, regardless of how they feel about the rest of the book, uh, it is that you are morally and legally required to stand Goose and Lion Cat. <laughs> Those are the two most important characters in the book, <laughs> without oh, a doubt. His um, waiters. His his waiters are toy. So, anyways, yes, that's he, not to I, say. Um, not to steal from another podcast, but he would win the Dion Waiters Award. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you laughing. So, like, obviously, I don't have insight into how every single character's creation or design came about. That's just to say that, like, I don't think that that Vaughn was like, hey, I've got this idea for these two planets at war. And she was like, okay, here are the Reethers and here are the Landfallians. Like, I think some of the species um, and and some of them, like, who have a more distinct look as well, like, I'm sure maybe not exactly as she appears on the page, but I'm sure there were some, like, design notes for the stock, things like that, for, for like, just for some of the central characters or races, like Prince Robot would be another one who I imagine there was, like, sort of a general concept. And then I'm sure there are plenty of others who uh, Staples, like, completely originated or just had, like, the vaguest suggestions from Vaughn and, and built uh rich and and excellent designs out of them anyways all that to say <laughs> uh as like as far as him like developing the world f- from childhood yeah I, I i i'm not really sure what it looks like because it doesn't feel to me like a world that has been developed since childhood if that makes sense like usually when i hear someone say that it's always like an insanely like detailed world that is intended to be like extremely immersive and has like a deep like history and lore and all this stuff that like might never make it onto the final page of like the finished product but they've got like their bible that they have (laughs) of like all the all the everything about how like how it all works like not to not to date this uh, podcast tremendously but like Substack is doing. Have you heard about the Substack thing? What about sub? I know of Substack. So they are like basically, they they're like signing contracts with comics creators to uh, like set up basically like subscription services to their like personal brands, right? And and like offer comics exclusively through Substack that they retain like all of the intellectual property and publishing rights to. So they're basically just like giving them money and be like, make whatever you want, but you can like you have to release it through Substack first. Anyways, so Jonathan Hickman is like currently working on his big Substack project, and like he, just in his announcement, he's like, I have been developing like the political systems. This writer has been developing the religions. This writer has been developing the economies, both black and white markets. Like it's so like it's very Hickman. It's, it's very very rules focused. Yeah, and, exactly. Like, and the world of Saga is not <laughs> a very no. rules focused world. Like, exactly. Immersive is not the word that I would use to describe it. It doesn't it doesn't like smack of those kinds of worlds. So as far as like i think the seed of the idea about like the the planet and the moon are at war with each other and they're fighting it through these proxy wars and 
you know, the like sort of Romeo and Juliet aspect of Elena and Marco's relationship. And again, like I'm sure some of the races, some of the settings, all that. I think a lot of that came through, but also I think that it's more in like broad strokes. It's not something that he's been obsessively like, you know, fleshing out since he was like 13 or something. Right. Because from a story perspective, it seems like he like did not know who the characters were or what the story was exactly until he like seriously started thinking about the creation of the book, which is obviously it's a book about parenthood and you know, it's a book about his own parenthood. Obviously he said he started to conceive of it when his wife became pregnant with his second daughter. He was doing a lot of conceiving around that time. Hmm, Interesting. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You made me lose my train of thought. You're terrible. Oh, and also, so my sort of read on the book thematically and sort of like the political elements of it, the two planets and the proxy war, is that it feels very, you know, obviously he's, I was about to say he's very interested in 9-11, which is (laughs) is true, but doesn't exactly sound right. But it's certainly interested in like 2000s US politics. And so if you think of it as like, The way I sort of see it is if Ex Machina is about U.S. domestic policy in the wake of 9-11, then Saga is in a lot of ways like U.S. foreign policy in the wake of 9-11, where you're fighting these proxy wars. You're like, well, and even like the Cold War as well, where you have like two sides fighting proxy wars funding like other people to do their dirty work for them in distant lands that the people who are actually on in the places that are ostensibly like funding these wars mm-hmm. are, are either like ignorant of or don't care about necessarily. And that feels like what he is drawing from in terms of like that element of it. Yeah, I would agree. I, and I think like um, the Cold War aspect of it is important too in terms of like when like he would have been a kid in um like the late 80s and early 90s when like you know those sorts of proxy wars like in in Afghanistan and and many other parts of the world would would have like uh, still have been like very much a thing for him at that point that I'm not surprised that like those those concepts kind of might have taken root then and then only like grown further in the wake of 9-11 is that like you know the the all of like the who's and how's exactly might have shifted around a little bit but yeah those proxy wars still very much figuring into into like American foreign policy um so why don't we dig in here uh we can provide you know a brief summary of what the book is actually about now that people have listened for half an hour to us talk um so the overarching plot is about this war between a planet and its moon landfall and wreath right yeah i'm really bad at remembering the names of well yeah and this is this is again like (laughs) i i earlier alluded to how this world that like this world that he's created doesn't have the same like level of insane detail or um or like immersion of something like a middle earth or like a star wars galaxy and i think that like (laughs) 
the difficulty of like remembering the names of some of these places or like figuring out what's distinct about them like it's 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 not about like look at the wondrous alien worlds it's about like look at what's familiar on these worlds and and like look at these very familiar people who are at the center of the story which is why i think like comparisons to very like elemental stories like star wars and lord of the rings and uh and the new testament <laughs> and like even game of thrones to an extent which like i would say more so than any of those other um works is like fairly character driven it's still like there's nothing in saga like the lists of like witch houses and all of their like standards and things like that they're in in the game of thrones books like right well middle earth is like the ultimate example of that where yeah totally from my understanding is that he wrote an encyclopedia and then was like (laughs) hey i should make some books about these (laughs) so yes it is does feel drastically different from that and you know obviously the one of the interesting things about the universe is that it, it has heavy elements of both sci-fi and fantasy. Like, I feel like the ultimate example of that is the wood rocket ship, which is, like, partly magic, partly mechanical and space-related. Yeah, well, it's uh, the rocket ship, of course, uh, is the perfect uh, marital home for them because, uh, like, Landfall, the the planet seems to be the more like technologically focused of the two the two factions and like obviously prince robot is not actually a landfallian but i feel like his his place as like the face of the landfall faction in the story really drives that home that he's like a robot with a tv for a head and then the other side of the conflict like the reethers all seem to be possessed of um like an innate magic uh that is like not really explained but obviously has like been what they've developed based off of rather than technology so the the like marriage of the fantasy and sci-fi elements in the rocket ship in many ways is really like uh the the same marriage that happens between elena and marco hmm, we're both nodding saves right now. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh you mm-hmm. know who prince robot reminds me of his mike tv from reboot <laughs> <laughs> Just want to bring that's that up racist <laughs> yeah it's true they're not actually that similar I, I shouldn't compare them just because they're both tvs <laughs> but we were summarizing the book so yes there are these two warring factions who because their battles would basically end in mutually assured destruction because they are not on the same planet but are so close to each other that the disruption of either would affect the other yes so they fight these proxy wars by funding and also sending soldiers to other planets to fight the war for them and this has gone on for at least decades i think we were talking another time trying to figure out exactly how long this has gone on but at the very least like since the childhood of marco's parents so you can assume that's you know what 60 years yeah bare minimum um i think yeah i i think it must be longer because in the opening narration hazel says like if there was ever a time when these two like 
they're not planets but if there was ever a time when these two celestial bodies got along nobody can remember it so it certainly like predates living memory it seems to like stretch back to like first contact basically and so the pr- principal characters of the story are Alana and Marco which were our two soldiers turned deserters turned lovers who have gotten together this is very unheard of within the world and they have also conceived a child which was previously thought to probably be impossible between the two races um the child named hazel and so basically the story is that they are on the run with this child uh while they are being chased by various forces representing the various factions who have a vested interest in this war and the other thing that really made me think of like u.s foreign policy in a way is the idea that like it's suggested or heavily implied that there is a financial or political benefit to the ruling powers that this war continues and that the reason that alada and marco are so sought after and people want to stop them is because they represent like the possibility of peace which is what they want to stump out yeah, the reasons the reasons for that are not really clear. Um, yeah, sorry, I got slightly distracted because I was thinking about if you want to talk about timelines that are really hard to track, Alana and Marco's relationship <laughs> makes right no sense. <laughs> well, because so they, well, I really want to get to my segment, but uh-huh. we can talk. <laughs> but um, so yes, yeah, so they are soldiers. Marco is captured or surrenders himself and is in prison. Alana then kind of takes an interest in him. So in the first issue, Agent Gale says he's transferred to a detention facility guarded by none other than Private First Class Alana. Twelve hours later, they both disappeared. Wait, what? Twelve hours. That's not possible. (laughs) That makes no sense. That is literally impossible because we we have at least a rough timeline of the relationship, which is that it starts with well, first we see her beating him up. Yes, classic. And then at some future time, which is presumably not the next morning, um, we see that they have sort of forged this relationship by he basically secret Marco's like club. working on the chain gang. Yeah. And then and they have this secret book club where Alana is reading to him from this weirdly plot important <laughs> book. What's the name of the book? A Midnight Smoke. Sure. Are you guessing? I'm pretty sure if if it's if a midnight smoke isn't the name of the book that they're obsessed with, it's the name of uh, D. Oswald Heist's other famous book. But right. I'm like 99% sure that it's a midnight smoke. Well, I'll look into this. But yes, that they they read this book together, which they believe to be a metaphor for the ongoing war and is basically an anti-war piece of propaganda. <laughs> Mm-hmm. A nighttime smoke. Is a nighttime smoke. Alana's favorite book. Close, but no cigar. Yeah, the the in universe <laughs> reception of it. <laughs> everyone is, hates it. Every, well, everyone hates it except them, and but also like it's a work of artistic genius. <laughs> but like maybe not. <laughs> like it seems like it's very norm core. Yeah, but also like Prince Robot reads it and is like. Hmm. <laughs> Obviously, this man is a genius, but right. but to what twisted end? <laughs> right. Yes, it's a book where nothing happens, which is ostensibly the point. 
But yeah, so Alana sets him free. They take off together. At some point in the future, they are living on... What's the name of it? Cleave. On Cleave. I only remember this because I am convinced that it's like a Cleveland stand-in. Right, because he's from Cleveland. Yes. And so at some point in the future, they are just banging it out and Mm -hmm. conceive of a child. (laughs) Certainly. And then presumably there's a gestation period, and I'm familiar with uh, <laughs> land folly and physiology, but it doesn't quite track. No, it well, yes, the, certainly the twelve hours doesn't track. After that, it's like more, it's more up in the air. All all we know is that according to Agent Gale, they disappeared within twelve hours and didn't resurface anywhere until three months prior to the events of the first issue. So where do we want? Oh, well, I have to do my segment. It's of very course. important. Um, so I'm looking at the cover. Of course, this segment is just what is going on here, where I review the cover of the first issue of uh, the book in question. So I'm looking. Sorry, I just need to pull it up here. I'm looking at the cover of Saga Number One. My first note is now we're talking. I don't know exactly what that is in reference to. <laughs> I mean, like it looks pretty cool. Shirt open. Yeah. The what I used to describe it was that it looks like someone commissioned art of their D and D campaign. <laughs> and there are these two characters because, like, it's like oh, like they're kind of cool designs, but they look very like designed, and it's like oh, like they have interesting features. Like she has these wings, and Marco has the horns and the sort of satyr-like ears. Mm-hmm. And he's um, got and, a cool sword, and she's got a cool gun. Yes, and and then also, so what I hypothesized at the time that I first saw this because I. I do my just what is going on here before I read any of the book. <laughs> I hypothesized that in the background, when you see these two green stalks sort of growing out from behind Alana <laughs> and this wing, that this was an, a hitherto-be-revealed character. A real goose type. <laughs> like an alien friend. It does kind of, of It does kind of look like... There's like maybe some sort of like insect rabbit riding on her back, right? Or or that he's just like standing behind her. He's like, "Hey guys, I'm here." <laughs> um, that's how he would talk. For some most notable element of the cover is that Alana has her shirt open and is breastfeeding baby Hazel. Um, yes, a highly controversial uh, cover. Yes, I was reading something about how like retailers wouldn't stock it and things like that. Yeah. Um, which is it's very interesting because you know i it's also something i noticed within the book itself that there's nudity very early on well i mean like there's a breast very early on but it's also presented in a very consciously non-sexual context i mean there's sex later in the book at the aforementioned robot sex um but but the, the first depiction of nudity is asexual or non-sexual seems like a conscious choice that like it can be like adult doesn't necessarily have to mean either sexual or violent as it often does so shall we shall we jump in here sure i was just about to say the opening like i think i think as a whole the concept of saga is in part like fairly explicitly like it's yeah, it's about parenthood, but it's also kind of about the parallels between making a comic book and parenthood. 
it's 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 stated almost very explicitly early on oh yeah like there's there's tons of talk about like how people like create together and like help bring ideas into the world etc etc um but i i view this like first (laughs) issue in particular as like uh vaughn and staples is like ode to comics because they like they talk a lot in interviews about how they set out to to like make a comic book, not like a future TV show or movie adaptation of a comic book. Right. And Vaughn <laughs> like talks about the first page being Alana like <laughs> actively giving birth and talking about some of the uh, the fecal risks that accompany that, <laughs> such that like a movie producer would be like. Ah, Saga, eh? The hot new comic property. Let's see what this is about. <laughs> I would, like, crack it open and be like, hmm, unadaptable. <laughs> I Get see. Mankiewicz on this, yeah. you'd say. <laughs> but yes, it opens with the, the narration from Hazel. What? What's up? Doesn't oh, you're doing the Mank thing? Yeah. <laughs> you haven't even seen Mank. I haven't seen Mank. But I know that someone in it goes, Mank. The subsequent line is, Mank, it's me, Orson Welles. <laughs> that cannot be <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's a very famous... It's a very famous part of the movie, um, but yes, the the first Gonna opening need you to page for a minute. <laughs> while you look this up, it's yeah. very real. I assure you. Um, the narration is: "This is how an idea becomes real." And then the I wrote down a quote that comes up a little later on: "Is that's why people create with someone else? Two minds can improve the odds of an idea's survival, but there are no guarantees." Which you know is very obviously feels like a nod to creating a comic, especially a comic outside of the the two-party system you might say (laughs) and he does mention in like issue six that before they knew how the first issue would sell he did have this idea of how if the comic had not worked out he would basically end it with issue six with having the rocket ship explode and kill them all yes which i don't know if he would actually do but is like sort of a a look into the fact that this was not seen as like a guaranteed property yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, I I also saw that interview and uh, like while reading was kind of trying to like figure out how that would have worked narratively. Uh, I think it was. It's all it's like it's hard to say sometimes with um, with comics because like the production schedule is so far ahead of like the release. But I, I think like he must have known by the time number five was like being worked on from like the art standpoint so the script had to be like locked in that it was a success because like i have no idea there there's like no indication you can't you can't pick out a moment and be like oh and that's where it would have like blown up and just been like the end especially since like we know that hazel survives um yeah i the the that may have been his thought at some point but it's definitely not like even knowing that, yeah, I, I don't know. Even, like, knowing that and looking at that issue, I'm like, you would have to completely rewrite this issue and maybe even, well, like, yes, issue definitely. four. Like, it's not... Yes, and yeah. it's it's it was a very quick success. Um, like, the first issue was highly successful and sold out multiple printings and all that stuff. So yep. I think they did know early on. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share about that? Oh, just I sold my copy of Saga number one for like three hundred dollars and bought a snare drum. Cool. 
it was. I liked it. <laughs> and just to go back quickly, you have confirmed that I was telling the truth about Mank. I have confirmed that at some point in the film Mank, someone <laughs> enters the line, Mank, it's me, Orson Welles. It's over the telephone, to be fair. So, yes. So the other thing is that there are no arcs, technically speaking, or at least there are no labeled arcs. Obviously, most comics tend to operate on that sort of like six-issue cycle, which we do sort of see here, where issues, the first six issues are basically about them about alana giving birth and then them sort of making their way off of uh cleave yeah (laughs) cleave uh, while also being hunted by various forces and these mercenaries the freelancers who like take a a fairly large role yep they are all witnesses um yeah it's like it's it's interesting to see how saga actually walks the line of like Again, like they designed it to be a comic book, and it's very clear to me, at least, that Vaughn wants like each individual issue to be rewarding and to be like, this will this will get him back next month. Um, while at the same time, also knowing that Saga is like king of the trades market and like does so well in the collected editions, and like that the way that he that they or the way that they put it out is always like six issues and then they take a couple months off and then six issues and take a couple months off and everything subdivides like perfectly down into like six issue chunks but without ever being like clearly defined story arcs in the same way that like you know like runaways had had more clearly defined arcs or or like ex machina it was, yeah. is another easy one where it was like very clearly like and now that story is over and it's time for the next one like even though you can say like well the first six issues all take place on cleave the like seven to twelve all take place on the rocket ship um 13 to 18 all take place on quietus like you can kind of use the settings to like delineate story arcs and and then obviously like the natural rhythm of how they put the issues out in those like six issue chunks um but it yeah it's, it is a lot more serialized i find than something like ex machina yeah and like i think it's just the way that the arcs sort of interweave with each other where one thing will sort of naturally segue into the next. But, like, I, I, I was going to say that maybe because it's, like, about them being on the run, that that sort of creates this natural forward momentum. But even Y has, like, the feeling of more delineated story arcs where it's, like, we're in this location and we need to accomplish a thing and then the thing is accomplished or, like, it ends in some way and then we move on to the next place. Whereas, like, with this, it's more... I guess partly because you're focusing on so many different characters at once and stuff that it feels more like, you know, you're do you're in different places all at once. So you can jump back to something and move that forward that it feeling like here's my new arc. Yeah. But yes, the, no, no titled story arcs at yeah. least. And, and like the cast is quite expansive and like, it, it, it I was surprised like to go back this was really the first time I've reread a lot of these issues since they first came out and so to go back and be like wow like Sophie slash slave girl it like gets introduced so much later than I thought or like like the stock is like barely in it and she's like such an important character 
and and like you know she's part of part of her presence is continued on and emphasized by the the will's delusions but like she dies after like three issues and i was like what the <laughs> like i obviously i remember she died but i was like wow that happens like really fast and yeah, like i was also like what the because when that character is introduced like it feels like a big deal and then she is like instantly killed yeah and, and like even just to go back and be like oh we never see the will and the stock like in the same room no which on like the same planet even whoa the galaxy's freaking huge. Whoa. And we are actually it? promising a Neil deGrasse Tyson interview. <laughs> <laughs> and we are actually and all this... made of star stuff. <laughs> uh, well, I was just sort of figuring out where I want to go here because we can talk about what's going on. I do have a couple of uh, behind the scenes things to note <laughs> well, about behind... <laughs> about brian k vaughn and fiona staples's creative process or about your reading process <laughs> <laughs> behind the scenes about me no well, like just things i read mainly in the letters column right okay. so the first thing is that after issue one he talks about how he is very unconnected to the wider world of the internet because mm. he spilled french onion soup on his router <laughs> so if you want to talk about that for a bit? Uh, wow, you're uh, you're really blowing up my spot with regards to Frenny, <laughs> which is of course my my loving pet name for French onion soup, the perfect appetizer. It's too heavy. It's what? It's onions, bread, and cheese. It's literally three perfect things. <laughs> That's I'm not denying that. Okay. Just talk a little bit about your love for French onion soup. Because uh, as soon as I saw that, I was like, you two are soulmates. I love French onion soup. If a restaurant has French onion soup on the appetizer's menu, or really anywhere on the menu, but <laughs> usually they put it in the appetizer's. <laughs> I'll acknowledge that. Anyways, if it's on the menu, I am ordering it. Um, and I, I don't have like a codified system or anything, but if a place has good French onion soup... I remember. <laughs> and sure. if a place has really good French onion soup, uh, I will be going back. You will go there every week for pub trivia. And you know what? Okay, so we go to a, a, a pub we, called... We did. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, we went to... A, uh, hopefully, it'll be back soon. We yes. went for, to a pub trivia at a pub called The Coach and Lantern. Shout out. And they made a French onion soup, which was pretty good. I think its main claim to fame was that they put whole cloves of garlic in it. Um which like when you get one of those bad boys in your mouth like good stuff but the place in my town that i love to get the frenny at is <laughs> is the aberdeen tavern because instead of putting like just bread on top of it which is like or, or like a lot of places will croutons. do just like croutons in it yeah they do a puff pastry that sits on Ooh. top of it and then like melts into the soup and it's next level. <laughs> well, you're a truly vile human being. <laughs> I'm ashamed to know you. Um, the other thing that is tangentially related to the comic at hand is I have some questions from this from the reader survey. Right. You meant, I, so I have no recollection of this uh, whatsoever. I only wrote down a few because some are less interesting than others, but I'll read you a few now and you can tell me your answers. 
The first question, who would win in a fight, the Hulk or Rorschach? The Hulk, obviously. <laughs> yes, I I too was confused by this. Like, <laughs> and why Rorschach of all people? Like, obviously, like the one, I feel like the one people go to a lot is Batman. Yeah, like, well, which like, also he the Hulk power. He's really but, smart. Yeah, I, Rorschach kind of has like the same sort of like the people who are really into Rorschach. I feel like are also like he can improvise a weapon out of freaking anything and like there's nothing he's not ready for because he's so twisted that i like his politics <laughs> that's, 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 yeah and i really like his stance on reagan okay so we'll we'll lock that one in that the hulk would defeat <laughs> I, I feel pretty confident to say that the hulk would defeat rorschach i feel pretty confident in that as well i don't Although know what the true answer is whoever the writer freaking wants that's so freaking true king um <laughs> you just stop drinking from your big water bottle so much <laughs> if only i could uh if you had to permanently give uh, maybe the your talk about frenny maybe we'll preclude this answer but if you had to permanently give up either chocolate or cheese which would you choose oh i think i think i would do chocolate well, you also famously love gummies. <laughs> part of what makes you such a bad person. I, I do. There's just so many other good, like, treats. Yeah, you love, you love candy. I do love, <laughs> like, I do love candy. It would be hard to say goodbye to chocolate forever. I'm not going to lie. Like, there's nothing wrong with chocolate. But there's so many other treats that you can have. Cheese, <laughs> like, I, I don't eat chocolate every day. I think I probably eat cheese every day, or at least, like, probably four or five times a week. Right. I'm I am going to have to go with chocolate as the one I would give up. Yes, you're, and, yes, to, to, to clarify, you love candy. I, I feel like I most adults. Candy. In fact, oh, usually when we record, which is on usually Sunday afternoons, David will come into the Zoom call wielding a bag full of candy and a beer <laughs> just the craziest vibe you've got some what appear to be gummy bears there that's right og gummy bears did we leave in the our gummy bear talk from that, I don't that previous episode it's psychotic that you have a candy that you love candy and that you love specifically <laughs> gummy bears gummy bears aren't my favorite candy they're just a reliable classic yeah, if they're not your favorite, then you are eating Jeez them of too candy. much. Oh, vile. <laughs> okay, we need to move on. Oh, well, what I was going to say is that I feel like most adults <laughs> either, like, they like chocolate, they like ice cream, and they like, like, cakes and, like, pastries. And they kind of pass on the candy, so kind of grow out of that, you might say. But you are remaining stalwart in your love of just straight up candy i think if you put out a bowl of gummy worms or, or gummy bears <laughs> rather at a party they're gonna get eaten i feel like that famously doesn't happen that like doesn't all the happen. chips get eaten <laughs> that doesn't happen at uh, at our family gatherings certainly but i think if you had 30 adults in a room and you put out some gummy <laughs> bears people are gonna eat the gummy bears and by people you mean you i mean if <laughs> i'm face, invited <laughs> yes your face says if it comes to that <laughs> Uh, which of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is most assuredly an atheist? 
Oh, the purple one. <laughs> Smart one. <laughs> Interesting. So you associate atheism with intelligence. <laughs> I associate, like, being a real insufferable nerd. <laughs> <laughs> you no, associate, think... quote, doing machines? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, whichever one is the purple one. Raphael? No, Raphael. I know Raphael's the red one. I know it's not And Michelangelo's the orange one. Well, then it must be... No, wait, it is no, Donatello. it is Donatello. Yeah, you're right. It is Donatello. And Leonardo's the blue one with the swords, because that one's me. <laughs> <laughs> and which we one are you? We all know that we're all the yellow one. <laughs> What's you the... There's no yellow what? one. What? What are you talking on, about? blue... Orange, blue, purple, orange red, is and the orange. Wolverine one. <laughs> huh? Orange is like the anti-hero... Uh, no, that's Raphael. Uh, He's red. You know nothing about yeah, the turtles. Yeah, I do this know is... nothing about the turtles. Okay, we're this both so the orange sad. one then, is what I'm... <laughs> we're the one who loves to eat pizza and not take anything seriously. <laughs> sure. <laughs> to the detriment of the well-being of the people around uh-huh. <laughs> Seems like more of a you thing, but okay. <laughs> uh-huh. If you had to fight in any war from human history, which would you choose? Woof. Um, boy. Gonna have to go... Do I have to fight for the whole thing? Well, yeah, in in a certain theater for a standard unit of time, we'll say. I'm definitely going something 21st century. I was gonna say, like, I feel like if you go, like, anything, even even in the 20th century, there are some bad ones. But anything before the 20th century, yeah, but like... I'm I'm going with one of the ones where the casualty count is, like, in the triple digits yearly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're doing a tour in Iraq is basically what yeah, you're pretty, telling me. Yeah, pretty much. Or, like, uh, I'm in, like, one of the UN peacekeeping missions in, like, Bosnia or something. <laughs> like James I'm Blunt? Bl- I'm Black Hawk downing it. <laughs> do you know about James Blunt? Did he, did he, did he like... do a tour in a UN peacekeeping okay, mission? Okay, wait. This is, so, this is so deeply off topic, but I simply <laughs> must read you this. I, I simply must read you the headings of James Blunt's Wikipedia page. Oh. Number one, early life. Number three, music career. Number four, Twitter. <laughs> number five, personal life. But let's just dial back quickly to number two, military service. <laughs> this is news to me. Okay, here is the relevant uh, piece of context here. In 1999, Blunt volunteered to join a Blues and Royal Squadron deploying with NATO to Kosovo. And you know, it's funny because the blues influence you don't really hear in his music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's more of a soft folk. Initially assigned to carry a reconnaissance of the North Macedonia-Yugoslavia border, Blunt's troops <laughs> okay, worked yeah, ahead yeah. of the front lines, locating and targeting Serbian forces for the NATO bombing campaign. So he was a on... commando, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> on June 12, 1999, the troop led the 30,000-strong NATO keep peacekeeping force from the North Macedonia border towards Pristina International Airport. However, a Russian military contingent had moved in and taken control of the airport before his unit's arrival. American NATO commander Wesley Clark ordered the unit forcibly take the airport from the Russians. General Mike Jackson, the British commander, refused the order, telling Clark that they were not going to start World War III for you. Blunt has said that he would have refused to obey such an order if General Jackson had not blocked it. He's a real Wahlberg, a real Ranazizi. Imagine being the reporter who's like, and James, if that order had come in, would you have obeyed it? But yeah, so that's the deal with James Blunt mm-hmm. and his military service. Uh, let's let's go back into Saga here. 
Is there anything specific you want to talk about in the first uh, few issues, the first six or so, where we cover Alana and Marco doing their thing, they run into some ghoulies, they meet Isabel, the ghost... Yeah, not uh, not really. Other than there's like it's it really is a lot of table setting, which is understandable when you like. I don't know. He he says he could have ended it at issue five or six if he needed to, but we're fifty four in with uh, another fifty four uh, slated still to go. So it's not maybe that surprising that, that it takes a few issues just to like put all the pieces on the table and uh, and you know get things going. Yeah, I don't know. The freelancers, uh, I like. I like uh, the Will's sleazy, like, <laughs> show business agent. We must stand Lion Cat. Uh, we should probably stand Isabel, I would say. Yes, a lot of characters introduced pretty early on. So you have Marco and Alana. Um, lots of lots of like grim foreshadowing with uh, with Isabel, too, I would say. Like the whole soul bond thing of like... It'll only hurt her on the day it ends and like later on, like there's just there's just like a lot. <laughs> Isabel's like a character that he loves to be like, there's more than meets the eye with this one. Um, Prince Robot, we must stand the yes. like goopy brain in a jar that hates having monitor duty with Alana. We must stand. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good bit. Uh, but yeah. So so there's Marco and Alana. Um Marco has some horns, he has a sword, which is he has vowed not to use, but uses quite quickly, and then breaks quite quickly, which is basically a lightsaber. Alana has like a teeny gun. Yep. The, so the one thing I have here is that Isabel really looks like Molly, no? Uh, she's got like a floppy hat for sure. There is a little bit of, like, I I, I wasn't quite sold on this early on. Just because I feel like this is such an early 2010s style, especially this the humor in it. The, the whole, it's like, it's a very serious thing, but the characters are very flippant about it. And well, like the, the classic example of like the kind of joke is like, well, that just happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's also like the MCU's brand of humor as well. So I feel like that, sort of like approach to things just feels a little bit played out at this point yeah it's uh it's a bit glib i think uh i think it's fair to say <laughs> i i mean like vaughn is a bit glib so like i wouldn't i wouldn't say that that's like new for him and like it's why the descriptions that we've already talked about of like trying to compare it to other uh, you know epic works uh fall short because really anyone who's ever read a brian k vaughn comic should have expected coming in that it would be a brian k vaughn comic so yeah i think i think that's fair to say i do think like not to not to tip my hand too early especially about future issues but i have kind of alluded to like this comic doesn't always hit with me as much as it seems to with a lot of other people and I think the like the kind of jokiness of it, or like more specifically, like how incessant the jokiness feels sometimes, uh, is part of that. And and it's like beyond just like the characters joking, but like Fard Fard is like the one of the classic things I think of where it's like, man, like an editor really. <laughs> 
<laughs> isn't the worst thing in the world, huh? <laughs> like, like, yeah. Do maybe we, a little. Do we need fart? And and like, fart is the like. Let's just say fart is the first of like a few uh, full page splashes about which I would say. <sighs> is this what we want to do with this like <laughs> yes. okay especially, especially because i feel like there are more avenues for humor in this book than other vaughn books where like normally the humor is very much dialogue driven and also situationally driven like there's a lot of like irony in his books in terms of the situations where it's just like it's funny that this character has ended up in this circumstance, mm-hmm. which there is quite a bit of in this book, and I do like that. But then also, like, things like, like, I'm looking at a panel right now where Agent Gale is on the phone with Prince Robot, mm-hmm. and then in the background is the Princess Robot being served hors d'oeuvres by the Crocodile oh, Butler, I who's love another great character. <laughs> yes, there are, so, like, a lot, oh, sorry, I just went to the next page and Goose was there. <laughs> Oh, I, we need to devote, like, a solid 15-minute chunk to him. <sighs> yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I, just suffice to say, like, yes, it it is it is very, uh, like, jokey. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, it's not that it's, like, there's never a serious moment. Obviously, there's lots of, like, very serious moments. There's lots of, like, real tearjerkers. And I feel that most of them are not in these, like, first <laughs> six issues. And, and... You know, show me the comic series that does manage to get you, like, really emotionally invested in a character in six issues. Like, it's not super easy to do, um, while also telling, like, a pretty complicated story or, like, introducing you into a pretty a pretty large world. So, yeah, the, the first six issues, I think, by and large, are fine. Um, I think the, the next 12 are significantly stronger. Like, once yeah. they get off Cleave, things pick up for me a lot more. Yeah, certainly from the Alana and Marco storyline perspective, where there isn't really that much going on. Like, Marco gets injured very early on, and so he is sort of being carted around and isn't really, like, part of things much. Yeah. Um, one important thing I know to you, which we need to talk about that is introduced early on in issue four and Mm -hmm. speaking of sort of the ability of (laughs) there's a there's a lot of important things to me introduced in issue four so carry on speaking of the ability of the setting to invoke some humor that wouldn't otherwise be possible in other books uh what i will dub the sextillionaires (laughs) the entire population of sextillion is uh amazing um the first page of issue four is is an amazing first page <laughs> it's one of the most shocking things we are I've ever seen in a comic introduced to the two matrons of sextillion who are each huge heads <laughs> perched on top of legs with nothing else and like i feel like it's that this is where like I am can I'm sure that that Staples designed these characters and the design is like doing so much work here like right out the gate to be like welcome <laughs> to Sextillion a place where women are reduced to like mouths and legs and <laughs> like that's <Right>. it. <laughs> 
Oh, they're so wild. <laughs> they are wild. I really like the security guards, too, that are, like, torso. They're, like, the classic bit where you're like, look, my nipples are eyes and my belly button is a mouth. Except, like, actually. <laughs> that classic bit. Uh, kids do that all the time. They're like, look, my belly Well, it's really the talking, talking with the belly. Yeah, it's yeah, a classic. And the, the nipples are always eyes. Yeah, anyways, the security <laughs> well, guards ha- have no heads uh, and just, like, have their faces on their torsos, which is amazing. The other uh, security are also like star nose moles, which is a really oh, good yeah, bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those guys uh, are very, like, um, very, very, uh, like, mafia evocative to me. Like, don't make Right, me yes. They kind of like. <laughs> Where's the freaking uh, Gabagoo? <laughs> uh, yeah, like that guy. <laughs> right. So there's just so much going on <laughs> in these six issues alone. Like, I feel like Alana and Marco are by far the least interesting part of these first few issues. Uh, definitely. Like, I mean, they're, but like the Will is a very interesting character. Prince Robot is like maybe my favorite character in the series. And like just it has there's just like a lot going on with Prince Robot in the way that like there's just not really a lot going on. <laughs> with alana and marco not that they're like two-dimensional or anything like that but like yeah prince robot and the will are both more interesting characters to me for sure yeah they're more like alana marco like more straightforwardly like protagonistic which also makes them a little less interesting because so much of this book is like people who aren't necessarily evil and have these like diverse motivations that like and like obviously do bad things and do bad things to the main characters Mm -hmm. but also do have some level of sympathy with them and so like alana marco who are like more of those just like you know again it's like they're not they're not like perfect people by any stretch of the imagination but like they're more conventional protagonists where they will trend towards doing good over like serving themselves entirely yeah and there's like you know we we get some allusions to like there's certainly more to like alana than like her first impression and i think that like vaughn does a a pretty good job of bearing that out over time especially in the way that like everyone who knew her before she left is like kind of dismissive of her and sort of like she was pretty unremarkable but like Obviously, we see her do lots of remarkable things, and and there's like several allusions to Marco's like past, and we see him like kind of hulk out the one time and like murder a bunch of people. Um, you know, there there is more to them than just sort of the like the one note, you know, sort of like white bread parent uh, that I think we see mostly in the in the first six issues, but. Vaughn is just more patient in kind of like pulling those strands out for them. Whereas like the will, like the first thing that we read from another character's perspective about the will is like Hazel's narration of him, where she basically says like, like pretty much every freelancer that we ever met, he was like a monster, but like there's worse monsters out there or like, you know, monsters aren't always the worst thing in the world. And like, 
so yeah, he's he's like a very interesting and complicated character, Prince Robot. Yeah, I've, I'm just a big Prince Robot fan. <laughs> As I've mentioned to you previously, you will meet King Robot one day, and <laughs> I'm a big fan of the whole robot monarchy. <laughs> Everything about them, their design, the fact that their names are all title robot numeral. But yes, so yeah, there's a lot going I mean, like the stock, like we said, like the stock is introduced and killed within like three issues. I mean, like, I, I have as a note, sheesh, exclamation mark, the stock, exclamation mark, <laughs> because she just looks crazy. She does look crazy. She is she is uh, a great design as well. The yeah, all the all the freelancers are good. I like their I like their little lance. I like the Will's indestructible cape. <laughs> yes, his like, fireproof cape. I like Lion Cat. I like uh, Sweet Boy. <laughs> I like all the animal sidekicks. Yeah, there are there are a lot of sidekicks now that I think there about are it. a lot of sidekicks. Lion Cat is a great demonstration of how when you put handcuffs on yourself, as far as like the things you can show or express, then that is when like creativity will really shine in terms of how you can still draw character out. Which like Lion Cat can say one word. And the combination of how Vaughn uses her and how Staples renders her, especially her facial expressions, it just like renders that one word extremely potent and extremely versatile. Um, yeah, Lion Cat, we stand, we stand Don Guard. We stand Don. That's that's actually very good. Is what I'm continually realizing. Um, so is there, is there anything else we want to talk about in the first six issues? Because in issue seven, I have a note here right at the top, which says, I see you've been drawn into the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, there's not really anything I want to say about, uh, about these first six issues specifically, except that. For as much as they are important and set the table a lot, and there are standouts, and I, particularly I think issue four is a standout, uh, I think that the issues that follow are a lot stronger. Yeah, I guess that's also part... It, it, I'm finding it is kind of hard to talk about this book because it's not delineated as cleanly, and there's like so much going on, and like characters are moving in different directions. Yeah, there's like there's so much that I mean, as we already kind of said, like Prince Robot. Actually, okay, I do I do want to get a little bit further into the the plot of these issues. So there's there's the three um, sort of storylines, one of which is Marco and Alana's, and as we've said, kind of like nothing really happens in that storyline which i think is part of the problem like it's the story of how they go from like the back shed of a garage to (laughs) rocket ship so they can leave the planet and mostly that involves like meeting isabel and like walking walking. places yeah yeah which is like not not the most stimulating stuff however in the in the first issue we learn that landfall which is the planet the of winged creatures to which uh, alana is a native and wreath which is the moon home of the horn-headed goat people <laughs> of whom marco is one are both aware of their unholy union um and both have a vested interest in uh seeing it kind of quietly come to an end and ideally get their hands on hazel if they can 
Landfall is pursuing that by sending out Prince Robot the fourth or four, as he is uh, more colloquially known, who is um, a recent veteran of a grueling campaign uh, and whose wife is uh, soon to be giving birth. Uh, and he is sent out and told that he can't come back home until he has dealt with the Lana and er, Alana and Marco issue. The Wreath side has contracted several freelancers who are basically a mercenary faction. And the most prominent of those are the Will, who we have talked about a fair bit, who is basically just sort of like a grizzled veteran um, freelancer. He's kind of like a like a punisher-esque figure almost but like he's certainly a very much an anti-hero yeah i i yeah mercenary is really the the best word for him he's not quite amoral um but he also is like certainly not a good guy anyways so he is he is one and the stock is the other uh and of course they have their complicated romantic history yeah, I mean, well, like, I, and I think maybe, like, we can just talk about, like, individual characters in the context of, like, these first 18 issues. So, we certainly see some, like, a lot of character growth from the Will, or maybe not growth, but certainly a lot happens to him, um, which starts with the stock dying, and then we see him rescuing Slave Girl, um, and then he meets Gwendolyn, who is Marco's erstwhile fiance. Yes. And so they sort of team up in this hunt and at the same time start to develop some sort of affection for each other. Um, and so I'm trying to remember exactly where he's at by the end of the 18 issues. But basically, it sort of develops into him like questioning his overall purpose of things. Well, so at the end of the 18 issues, he's in a hospital bed in a coma, you may recall. Right. Yeah, so it that, that sort of having the decisions to make between whether he wants to like continue to pursue this life, which is obviously when he is sort of questioned up to this point, but then also this cre or you know, the idea of this sort of domestic bliss or some opportunity to have a family which he had maybe wanted with the stock and lost and having that sort of pull between i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah he's he's like the whatever it is that got him into the like freelancer trade it does not appeal to him and like we yeah i definitely think we see indications that the happiness that Marco and Alana have found by like turning their back on war and and choosing each other is something that he also wants, but like doesn't really know how to get it. And especially after the, the stock dies, um, he he sort of like has to refocus himself on the the pursuit of um, Prince Robot as opposed to like that that becomes sort of more his mission almost than uh finding Marco and Alana and it's only meeting Gwendolyn that kind of pulls him back onto that track um because obviously she is very uh, interested in in tracking them down so shall shall we talk about Prince Robot how can we not um he's great he's bad until you know maybe he's going to be not so bad later but Whoa. Time alone will tell. Um, to be certain. 
to be certain. I mean, his he really shines. I feel um, in the in the quietest storyline and in in his interactions with uh, D. Oswald Heist in particular. Yeah, that's sort of like where we get more of like the philosophical angle of the book t- from characters that are maybe, if not a little smarter, at least like a little more high minded about it because. Like, I feel like a lot of Marco don't really have the luxury of thinking about the war as, like, a philosophical concept because they're so, like, directly sort of impacted by it. Whereas, well, D. Oswald Heist especially, and Prince Robot, because he's, like, higher status, can sort of afford to, like, have these more philosophical conversations about it it's interesting because it's not as though it's not personal for them either. Certainly not for Prince Robot. That it's not personal or it is personal? That it is personal. Well, I think like Heist's Heist's son makes it very personal for him as well. Right. Yeah, but, but what I mean is like he is very separated from the war and like is not physically or like, you know, like he's not directly impacted by it until... Alana and Marco and everyone show up there. But certainly, yes, he... he. I think what we see is that everyone's life has been touched by the war in some respect. Yes, certainly, uh, yes, that that is undeniable. Yeah, well, once once they're on the ship, really the, the two characters who are introduced and are important to that storyline are Marco's parents. Who, yes, they that is really where, like you said, like, I feel like that creates a very interesting element of their storyline um it creates more conflict and it certainly like conflict that isn't directly driven by external circumstance so what we what we get at the end of issue six is that marco's parents uh what are their names okay bar and clara so they arrive on the ship uh, basically to save marco (laughs) they banish Isabel into like a cloud of blood. <laughs> they they doom her to fard. <laughs> right. And then are sort of forced to like it and there are, you know, a lot of that they've talked you know, he talks about how the characters are non white. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously it's they're alien races, so you can't really be white per se. Um but it is a lot of like vibes of like an interracial marriage. Or an interracial relationship. Yeah, and and like the multi-generational family like living situation. Yeah, they 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 really do, I think, inject some some important like kind of dynamics into the uh, the Alana and Marco storyline. Um and and like just give it all like a little bit of direction and some new stakes. Not that like you know they're, it's it's all obviously very high stakes as far as like their their star-crossed love that for whatever reason poses this like threat to 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 like alien dynasties and like you know obviously their lives and the life of their child are constantly in uh, in jeopardy but uh, to to I guess I guess they ground things a little bit more and inject some conflict that is about like brings it back to the relatability of the characters that is like again as we've been saying like really what this book is built on and and makes its money on far more than like the sci-fi or fantasy elements of it the 
the relatability of the characters, the identifiability of the characters, like the, the, the strength of the characters and how distinct they are is the bread and butter of this book. So to have these characters enter and like inject stakes like um, how do you deal with your mom not approving of like the person you've chosen to marry or how do you like navigate knowing that your husband's father is dying when he doesn't know yet? you know those are those are still fairly dramatic circumstances in their own their own ways but they're much more uh immediate and and like situations that you know people have been in or or can imagine themselves in much more so than you know a mercenary is chasing me (laughs) across space in my rocket ship yeah and i think also these moments like especially i think the main thrust of the like second volume of issues you could say is like the sort of ongoing conversations between bar and Alana, which I think like the benefit of that is that you get to see more character stuff. Like when you're only being driven by like, we have to stay alive, then that sort of monopolizes the conversation. Mm -hmm. But then once these characters show up and like it at the same time, things slow down at least from their perspective, maybe less so from, marco and clara's perspective but that you get more opportunity to reveal character and you put a character in a situation where their feelings and opinions have a little more nuance than just like i don't want to die therefore i should do the thing that causes me to not die yeah there's there are again it's not that there weren't like these grounding character moments in the first the first handful of issues but exchanges like like between Marco and Clara when when Clara tells him that they sold their house so they could buy the teleportation helmets is like a great like character beat um again bar like bar using the secret that um that he's dying to like free himself from uh the trap that uh, Alana sets for him like they they these are just like the kinds of uh, the kinds of things that the series does really well um like really excels at they are the strengths of the book and yeah i i just think like it's not just about expanding the cast i think it's expanding the cast that is immediately around marco and alana is what's beneficial and we'll see it again like heist is also a great addition for the third story arc that like is another new dynamic in that in that group and which again, I think, like, injects some really good energy into their storyline and, uh, yeah, just, just like, kind of brings them along nicely. Yeah, and then we see, and we see the same thing happening from the Will side by introducing Gwendolyn to things. Like, the Will, obviously, he's had a little more chance to reveal, like, character depth and deal with different people and have conversations with different people than Marco and Alana have, but introducing Gwendolyn into the picture creates like this new dynamic for them as well where he sort of has someone to like intellectually contend with and also like a possible romantic interest so that's like an element of it as well so like expanding the cast serves the purpose of expanding the number of viewpoints and expanding the number of like things different people want because like I think at least in these issues, like a lot of the story is driven by how much people's goals align with each other almost. 
because so like like Gwendolyn and the Will are both searching for Marco and Alana for different reasons, and so their interests align in like that moment. And then when they're on whatever that planet is called, <laughs> they're on together. It sort of has the feeling of like they're being torn by two different desires or two different like possible things that they could each want Mm -hmm. and that like is the source of a lot of tension as well and so like i i think that that's the benefit of increasing the number of characters is that like that the goals start to diverge and that like creates the conflict yes i agree um just to like map out the basic sort of storylines that are that are happening in these six issues uh so Marco's parents arrive and in the process banish Isabel. So they kind of like split the party for a little bit and we get to see like Alana and Barr bond and then uh, Marco and his mother talking things out. They are eventually able to get Isabel (laughs) back from Fard and his egg planet um, and, and return to the ship uh, at which point, uh, Bar sacrifices himself to help them escape from the Fard's egg planet hatching uh, and trying to suck them into a black hole that is also a baby. The Will is trying to figure out how to free Slave Girl, aka Sophie, from uh, Sextillion and then is confronted by Gwendolyn, who wants him back working on the Marco and Alana thing. She agrees to help him get her, get um, Sophie off of Sextillion so that he can uh, refocus himself on the Marco and Alana hunt. Uh, So they do successfully rescue her and then um, go to attack uh, Marco and Alana also by the black hole, but are also forced to retreat when the black hole thing explodes and then Prince Robot, he's not really in these issues as much because he figures out like relatively quickly that they're trying to get to Quietus. Like, so he he has like been interviewing people who knew Alana from like the Landfall side, and he interviews the the like girl who used to do guard duty with her, who gives her the book uh, A Nighttime Smoke, and then he so he sees that. D. Oswald Heist, the author, lives on Quietus and is like, guess I need to go there. And we see more of his, like, ta- like there's more table setting done for him in the first few issues. Like, he gets more of, like, a slow introduction where he has time to, like, have conversations and, like, flush out his whole deal. Yeah. Like, what, what would you say is his deal? Like, certainly that, like, he's sort of, like, much like other characters, is, like, torn between having this war to fight and having a family but that also has this weird thing where he like is sort of traumatized yeah so he's he survived an attack uh that was like uh, very vicious and bloody apparently by wreath forces during which like most of his fellow soldiers seem to have died and so he like has fairly like intense PTSD, it seems like, associated with that, which we primarily see. This is like a cool conceit, but I don't always really understand what is going on. So because his head is a TV, 
we will occasionally see it turn on and display images. Sometimes that's like fairly straightforward and and like um, just just show like what he's dreaming while he's sleeping, for example. Other times it can be like fairly oblique or or like, yeah, just just not really clear what the relationship is between the images that are being shown on the screen and robots emotional state other than that they are obviously linked yes and the big the big thing about that is that it seems like when he's having sex he dreams of war and when he is like engaged in war he thinks about sex which is something that gets talked about in the d oswald heist part when they're having their conversation where he says like the opposite of war isn't peace at sex but I don't fully understand what that's all about. Yeah, well, and it's like, it's also weird because we see him have a, a dream about the ambush wherein he is shot in the throat and we see some glimpses of the orgy that he later describes to D. Oswald Heist displayed on his screen but then we see that this is all unfolding on his screen while he's dreaming. It's very, it's very, yeah. Anyways, so that's... And also there's a very cute mouse medic. There is a very cute mouse medic, RIP. Um, that's his whole deal as far as, like, <laughs> his his design. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like, obviously, um, like, being torn between the war and his family is, like a big thing for him and the way in which he is sort of like a dark uh reflection of marco and alana to a certain extent he because like because of the ambush he takes the war very personally in a way that like again interestingly most of the landfall people that we encounter don't really seem to gail agent gail is like almost flippant about it um and even like the active duty soldiers who we see unless they are like actively fighting are kind of like this is our life but they don't like they don't seem to have the same vitriol that he does which which i find interesting but you know that's born of his his firsthand experience perhaps and like the idea that like his family is also like under threat like they basically imply that if he does not accomplish this goal of finding Marco and Alana that his wife and child will also be threatened mm -hmm. and so like that's another part of it as well where he is sort of like again it's like about the war sort of directly impacting him in this like very emotional way yeah I I always think of him as a very uh like Zuko-esque figure sure <laughs> <laughs> certainly in terms of his like relentless pursuit and his uh his fixation on the hunt in order to achieve what he wants for his own life not really because of anything that he has against the people he's hunting but because of what they will kind of be a bridge to for him yes and i'm assuming although i haven't really seen it like the fact that he's royalty and has this sort of responsibility to his family to uphold the family name mm -hmm. is also a very Zukoian thing. Indeed. And so shall we talk about a little more about like the the third arc, the 
D. Oswald heist arc. The quietest arc, if you will. Sure. So they so as we've sort of alluded to, Prince Robot deduces quite quickly that their or goal or you know that their idea is to travel to Quietus, the home of the author of this book that has so inspired them and that they perceive as a metaphor for pacifism and things of that nature and how the whole war is a bad idea. So they go to him. Is there really a stated purpose or is it just more like... Uh, I believe what Alana says is, I want my child to meet the smartest man on earth. <laughs> right. Uh, but they're they're basically going to him with the acknowledgement of like, because they've been fleeing for their lives this whole time, now that they are out of like imminent danger, they're sort of directionless and don't really actually have any ideas about what they're supposed to do next. So they go to him almost as like a kind of pilgrimage to be like, you wrote the book that like put us together. Now, like, what are we supposed to do with like the life that we have fought for? Right. And we sort of like, the the whole thing with Oswald Heist is that it's hard to exactly tell how much of him is real, oh, especially when he's interacting with Prince Robot. But like, he is a, a man. He contains multitudes. He has certainly this sort of like classic drunken writer sort of energy. Yeah, he's a little like Hemingwayish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's very. He's a hermit. Yeah. But then, obviously, he also has these, like, very, like, aspirational notions about peace. And he also has this connection that he forges with Clara, this sort of romantic interest. Yeah. So there's a lot going on with him. I, I like D. Oswald Heist a lot, like, especially because, like, he, again, like we talked about before, he gets to sort of contend with Prince Robot in this battle of wills and this encounter that is much more less violent and more philosophically inclined than we've seen up to this point yeah so we actually like sort of get to people talking about the war as a whole in terms other than just like it's dumb that people fight and they shouldn't fight yeah it's uh that that conversation we mostly see in number 12 uh which i would say is probably my favorite issue of these like collections of or or like the issues that we're covering today yeah which which is primarily taken up with like the long encounter between heist and uh prince robot and is extremely good yeah so basically like and again it's sort of d oswald heist is sort of like representing himself like at first he sort of tries to play it off that this is all like a joke to him and that he wrote the book for a quick paycheck yeah and then they sort of get into his idea of radical pacifism or like conscientious objecting Mm -hmm. he uh iconically requests that uh prince robot kill him because it'll only increase my book sales yes and then there's also there's so much going on (laughs) there's there's the two journalists what are their names uh upshur and doff i believe yes that's correct they're journalists, like tabloid journalists, mm-hmm. who are doing research and trying to like break this story about the child. But are again, this is what we sort of talked about in terms of like people have a vested interest in this story not getting out because they have an interest in the war continuing. So 
the that's where we get the appearance of Sweet Boy, the <laughs> evil Basset Hound, <laughs> or Saint Bernard, or whatever he is. Yes, they they are also like kind of another avenue for comedy in a more. Uh, I feel successful way like I'm thinking particularly when they visit uh, Alana's home and meet her stepmom is a very funny sequence and like the, <laughs> the <laughs> there's just a great panel where she she says I think the presence of a positive female figure helped Alana finally find some direction. She joined the armed forces a few months after I moved in and she's holding up this picture <laughs> of her wedding day which shows her she's like a couple years older than Alana with like this huge smile on her face and her dad who just looks kind of stoic and then Alana behind her in her like goth face <laughs> with like arms crossed and a huge scowl is so funny. <laughs> yes, it's very very Bill and Ted um with the the like stepmother that is Yeah, yeah. barely older than the child. But yes, and so the, these guys, they, I believe it's called Embargon that they get poisoned yes, with by is. the brand. <laughs> um, as the brand puts it, it's the stories with no sides that worry them, which is like, again, that sort of gets back to the idea that we have discussed multiple times. Oh, there's also the Will and Gwendolyn and Sophie who are on another planet that I forget the name of. I'm not sure if we even know the planet of the, or the name of this planet. They, like, only land there because they need emergency repairs to their ship. It's very, like, Land of the Lotus, like, from the Odyssey. When you're there, you sort of see the... How, how exactly does this work? It's like... You see the person you love or the person that you lost your virginity to, at the very least. And then they also, like, sort of drive you insane. Yeah, And they make you want to stay. It's, it's someone you love, yeah. And it's... Uh... Like, if you eat anything from the planet, it is, like, yeah, it's got, like, a weird, like, bioevolutionary function that tries to incorporate everything that lands on it into the ecosystem. So, yes, it, through various means, tries to convince you not to leave. Uh, and if you do try to leave, it tries to make things kill you. Right. Uh, so, so the, again, there is a lot going on. Like, weirdly, a lot happens in both these six issues and the 18 issues as a whole like it sort of makes your head spin trying to keep track of everything yeah which i think is why i like start I, even like shortly after reading these like i start to like forget details mm -hmm. yeah there certainly is a is a lot going on like it's uh there's a reason that it's going to take uh 108 issues to to get it all done yes <laughs> this is the the claim and we can talk about that more in our third episode when we talk about <laughs> like, the future of the book yes but... The, the idea that this will be 108 issues is very interesting to me. Okay, is there anything else we want to talk about? What's the name of the board game they play? That's another... Oh, I really like it's, that. Uh, it's, it's got, like, a, a name in blue, the language of... Uh, Nuntujnun. Yes, Nuntujnun. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, this is, that's just a joke that's always funny, is, like, the board game with very like esoteric rules yeah or like crazy things that you have to do in order to win the game yes uh, i believe they refer to the last round as the psych out round uh, yes at which <laughs> which heist and clara win by causing alana to have like an existential crisis about the words like we have a family to think about now <laughs> yes i don't it certainly doesn't feel like it's her intent 
necessarily. Like, I, it, it doesn't feel like she is, like, pretending for the sake of this conversation. But the the final button of the two of them, like, staring at the game board <laughs> as, like, a blue flame lights to signify their victory. <laughs> and saying and they both, <laughs> Yes, as if they've both been planning this is extremely funny. Uh, yes, it is a good... A good bit yeah what what more to say about these issues um obviously they resolve with um heist's death and the family fleeing uh the planet yes a very a very bkv and something we've talked about many times before where you have the moment where the different stories coalesce yeah so you have prince robot and the will and gwendolyn coming to quietus to meet with our standard traveling party, which, like you said, there's the heist gets killed, the will gets stabbed in the neck and ends up in a hospital, correct? Yeah, well, the will the will gets stabbed in the neck by Sophie because they like she's eaten. The yes, food. by like by the planet. Yeah. <laughs> so so Gwendolyn goes to Quietus to get Marco to like teach her a healing spell to bring him back right and then walks in on the confrontation between heist clara and prince robot and then not understanding what's happening thinks that heist is pulling a gun on her and lances him through the eye r.i.p a true king Yes, true, true king. Very Vaughn-esque narration about killing your darlings uh, yes. <laughs> over that segment, which is like, you know, like like many of his things, I'm like, yeah, it's good, but it doesn't have to be so happy about how good it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and the other, so the other big thing is like that Prince Robot gets rebooted. Yes. Basically. Yeah. So it, yeah, it really... It really is like kind of a crystallization of like the Vaughn coalescence that we have been talking about, like since Swamp Thing in a, in a lot of these stories where mm-hmm. they all it, it's yeah. And it's interesting to see it handled by like a more mature Vaughn, because the way that like all the pieces come together for like this big climax and then are scattered back out again to like with like with like a lot of momentum to keep the story going yes drastically changed yeah like it just shows how far he's come since swamp thing (laughs) where like that coalescence felt a little bit more like a mad scramble to kind of like land the plane this Mm -hmm. feels more like uh, yeah it's it's like symphonic almost how how everything like crescendos at the same time and then perfectly like sets the pieces for the next sort of phase of the story yes and and also the same time that you get the character resolutions as well like you sort of have i mean maybe it's not fair to call it a resolution between gwendolyn and marco that like basically like she gets pushed off a roof and so it's like it's over between us and then you get this sort of culmination of alana's sort of existential arc that she's been dealing with throughout a lot of these issues where she doesn't necessarily want to be seen only as a mother and is often very like scared about her adroitness both as a mother and as like a person and is very sort of like self self-doubting yeah and and also coming to terms with the idea that like being a mother like has changed her circumstances and that like the consideration of like 
being a mother means that you don't live your life the same way that you did before you were a mother is like a real thing. And then it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then to have that and like at the same time, like culminating it with like a more plot or character focused conclusion with like her flying her previously like vestigial wings getting used and having that be sort of like a metaphor for her self-actualization is a great part of it great great climax uh to have her fly of course and the like the last page of this issue as well where we see like hazel walk off the off the ship under her own uh, her own power so to speak and alana with her hair you know the passage of time for that last page is, is yes great... the classic the classic time skip a uh, time honored tradition yeah uh especially i feel like that's a very manga thing to have time skips but in in comics as well and it's just it's always a good moment i feel like yep so we we end with um the will is comatose and under the care of the brand who we know to also be his sister right. uh, and and sophie's namesake very cute even though they apparently have quite a bit of bad blood between them uh her real name is sophie which is the name that he bestowed on slave girl and that the will's name is william well yes <laughs> <laughs> that one's maybe a little less subtle <laughs> It's a good bit, though. <laughs> it is a good bit. Gwendolyn is teamed up with Lion Cat and Sophie Jr. And like, it's I guess it's not as clear necessarily exactly what they are planning to do, but they are teamed yeah. up together and see are are committed to you know helping the will. Yes, they're chilling, and then we get the narration. It would be a very long time before we saw any of our original pursuers again. Yeah. So, you know, again, sort of setting up that, like, we're going to come back and things will be changed. Yeah. And then Prince Robot um, has rebooted and apparently lost all memory of his mission and 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 everything it's he's like he got like a factory reset, basically. Yes. <laughs> and is... we, he like is like the least resolved of any of them. Where he sort of just walks away. Yeah, the last we see of him is he's, like, walking off into the mists of quietus after, like, Isabel has, like, kind of been, like, <laughs> doing, like, a little bit of manipulation to get him to help. And then as he, like, seems like he's maybe starting to, like, recollect himself a little bit, she's like, all right, now get out of here. And, and the last we see of him, he is walking away. But, yeah, as far as, like tying off the the all the different plot threads that have kind of characterized this first 18 issues which which are really like i mean as much as every issue is a chapter i would say the first 18 issues are kind of like act one and it's uh yeah it ends really strong i would say yeah i really like like again it's sort of overwhelming how much like different stuff is going on there like resolving a lot of plot arcs tied together is one thing, but then when you're also resolving like character arcs at the same time and like the relationships between different characters at the same time, it can be a little overwhelming, but it's definitely like it takes a lot to create that scenario. So like that's very cool. Yeah. Another thing that sort of comes up that we I I assume comes up later is this TV thing that they watch. Oh yeah, the open circuit. Uh, yeah. So that's what I was getting at. Um, 
it will come up later. In, in fact, I think uh, we'll be talking about it in the very next just what is going on here. But that was what I was alluding to as like space WWE earlier, although it's really more like a uh, like soap opera. It's like soap opera crossed with like uh, a local like wrestling promotion. <laughs> So it's wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not like, like, I keep saying WWE, but like, it's also like, it kind of is, but also it's kind of not, I I don't know, you'll see, you'll see what I'm talking about when we get into the, those issues more. But yes, they, so basically they went to Oswald Heist and we're like, and so now we like chill, right? And he's like, well, no. <laughs> Yes, like, because they yes, have sort of misinterpreted yes, the message, no. <laughs> the message of this book, which because the book is just about them like hanging out and doing nothing. They're like, oh, like that's what you want, right? Like we should all hang out and do nothing. Which he is a little bit like, yeah, he he is on. like, no, you're you're supposed you're supposed to like live your life, and that certainly involves lots of like mundane time, and and we see that pretty clearly with. There's a Hazel narration at one point where we see like Isabel is playing with her or or Isabel is like chatting with Clara while Heist is reading a book to Hazel and uh, Alana and Marco are like all everyone's like sprawled over couches hanging out reading in like a common room and Hazel is saying basically like if this isn't what your childhood looked like then I feel sorry for you and that is sort of more like the picture of like yeah, like, there's lots of those moments where you hang out and do nothing, but also, like, you have a responsibility to your child to care for them and provide for them, and, like, doing nothing but hanging out doesn't accomplish that. Yeah, and also, like, I think from the angle that, like, ideally the war will end at some point, if, even if you believe in, like, this, like, radical pacifism and, like, inaction almost, there is maybe some responsibility that the people who are against the war have to make efforts to prevent it. Yeah, he they they talk about his uh, idea, I believe, as presented in A Nighttime Smoke, that uh, everyone seems to be either uh, a consumer or uh, like a drone uh, and that all the creators are gone. So they they determine that like, Yes, they do need to, like, get a job, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to, like, give up on the sort of, like, romantic notions about life generally that brought them together in the first place and that, you know, is what appeals to them about uh, a nighttime smoke. They can They can pursue their responsibilities while still also rejecting, like, the status quo of what... Uh, their their respective planets would have their lives look like. Right, right, right. You're eating a gummy bear. I see. I'm in fact eating a fuzzy peach. Call me. Sure. Call me the Pesh mode. What? Call me the John Pesh show. <laughs> huh? Oh my gosh. Okay, we're we're finished talking about the comic. I assume you want to talk about awards. Yeah, it, this book wins an insane number of awards. <laughs> That's so interesting to me, like, because it's like, obviously, I like it. But I mean, like, even thinking about like other, I mean, I would have to like, look at a list of what I've read from this era. But like, it doesn't seem like it's like, like, I don't read it and think like, this is the most amazing thing I've read 
from like the 2010s. In 2013, its first eligible year, it wins the Eisner Award for Best Continuing Series, Best New Series, and Best Writer. It wins the Harveys for Best Writer, Best Artist, Best Colorist, Best New Series, Best Continuing or Limited Series, Best Single Issue or Story, and gets for a nomination uh, for number one, and gets a nomination for Best Cover Artist, and then the first volume wins uh, Best Graphic Story at the Hugos. In 2014, <laughs> it wins Best Continuing Series, Best Writer, Best Painter Multimedia Artist, and is nominated for Best Cover Artist at the Eisners, and at the Harveys wins Best Continuing Series, Best Writer, Best Artist, and Best Cover Artist, and uh, Volume 2 is nominated for Best Graphic Story at the Hugos. <laughs> In 2015, mm-hmm. it wins Best Continuing Series and Best Painter slash Multimedia Artist. Wait, that's insane. And Vaughn is nominated for Best Writer. And it wins the Harveys for Best Continuing Series, Best Artist, Best Cover Artist. And Vaughn is nominated for Best Writer. And Volume 3 is nominated <laughs> for Best Graphic Story at the Hugos. Like, I I understand the art for sure, because the art is incredible. Yeah, the art the art is uh insane. There has never there has not been a year when the comic was coming out that it wasn't at least nominated, let alone won, for best continuing series, best writer, and best artist in some capacity at the Harveys. And also in all three of those categories for the Eisners every year except twenty sixteen. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. The awards it's like unprecedented it's insane how many awards this comic has won and not to say that like it's not deserving or that i obviously it's a great comic uh it's not perfect certainly based on what i've read so far like i wouldn't say i like it more than y or x machina so it's just surprising to me that it's like such a big thing and maybe part of it is because like i was reading in the letters like when they're talking about the fan survey like there's a lot of female readers. Obviously, it's a very diverse cast, like from an ethnic or species perspective. Mm-hmm. And like, I assume attracts a very diverse audience as well. Yeah. And so like, definitely like those are huge positives for an industry that often struggles in those regards. Yeah. So maybe that's like part of the contributing factor to it. Yeah. And it is it is also kind of like Sandman-esque in that like, not only is there like, a large uh, proportion of women reading the comic in the audience, but it also has the reputation of like the comic that women also like. <laughs> um, and so it like also gets recommended on those grounds. And I know a lot of people see it much in the same way that like around like 2010, 11, 12, the why the last man would have been. It's a lot of times the like, I wish my friends read comics. What should I show them to get them into comics? They don't like superheroes. It's like, oh, give them saga. Right. It's the thing that sort of expands the boundaries and like is very, has mass appeal, but it's also like shows the potential of comics to tell like different stories. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I maybe, I feel like possibly some of my resistance to it is just like how effusive people can be about it when I'm like, guys i will i will never forget 
that there is like a guy on the comic book subreddit who's very active. <laughs> I was about to say, are you about to tell a story about a Reddit yeah. thread? But he he and I have very similar tastes, so I always like flag his comments. But someone someone like mentioned Saga as like a top five comic book all time, and he just replied, Saga isn't even a top five Brian K. Vaughn book. And I was like, <laughs> I feel like I maybe agree. <laughs> like again, I'm rereading these issues now for the first time and like it is like these issues I I always have like remembered are good. So I'm more curious to see how like in the next few, the next couple episodes worth of issues, how um, it is to revisit them. But that has kind of like been maybe not exactly, but not that far off of my perspective about Saga for a little while now. And so to see it like just like constantly celebrated and like seemingly immune to criticism except by like you know fans and readers like critically it has just been like universal acclaim to see it win the eisners every year now i don't have like a list of like actually in 2014 i think best continuing series should have gone to you know whatever but it's just like man like 2013 best continuing series 2014 best continuing series 2015 best continuing series 2016 best continuing series 2017 best continuing series like i can't think of wins yes that's insane yeah it's that's literally i just i just don't agree that saga was the best continuing series every year from 2013 (laughs) to 2017 and that's not a knock on saga yeah (laughs) it's just that like no comic has ever been the best comic on the shelf every year for six years like it just yeah yeah anyways so yeah it is it is very acclaimed i don't i don't know it's good i there's no denying that it's good it starts strong and it gets stronger but i don't think it's perfect and and if anything i think some of the things that we've identified about it become like more pronounced as far as as far as some of the weaknesses so yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll be interested to go and revisit it and see how much of that is just me like being a contrarian and and getting tired of hearing people say it's the greatest comic ever versus how much of it is actually like, actually, these things do annoy me. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I will we'll look forward to talking about that more in the next couple of episodes. Uh, but although since since we're here and thinking about it, we haven't really talked about Fiona Staples art at all. Um, other than yes. to say that she is the artist and you know i'm i'm going on about like the best continuing series win i have no problem with the best <laughs> artist wins yeah. she she uses like it's it's interesting i was reading an interview with her where when she won for best penciler in they like they like switched categories oh yeah 2017 she won for best penciler slash inker and she was like yeah, that was weird. <laughs> I don't pencil anything. Because <laughs> I don't pencil I don't ink. ink anything. Yeah, her her method is very unique. She's very, like, multimedia artist is really the right way to characterize it. Because I think... More like digital artist. Yeah, she does work 100% digitally. She does, like, all of the art, including coloring and all of the lettering for Hazel in every issue. She doesn't do all the lettering, but she does. she does the, like, Hazel narration lettering phonographics of course the the legendary letterer uh and designer for uh for for these issues but anyways 
her process is not because she's doing all the art internally herself and not working in traditional materials or like a physical medium she works in a very like non-conventional way that doesn't really conform to sort of like the um assembly line is maybe the wrong way to characterize it but it traditionally you know comics have always been like the art gets penciled then it gets inked then it gets colored then it gets lettered she will like will like sketch out figures and then color parts of like the background and then we'll flesh out some of the details uh in the figures and then color them as well and like doesn't pencil or ink anything because she's working completely digitally and 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 it's it's interesting even to see like painterly is a word that's used to describe her style a lot and it definitely is painterly and like the colors are very like dynamic and effective and and important to the mood yeah one thing one thing that i noticed compared to like previous stuff we've been looking at is like the coloring is more flat or like like there's more of a sense of lighting um and less of like that that gradient style that is very common in like the early 2000s comics that we've seen like there is like more like, well, I mean, I'm really just, like, looking over and over at the page where Goose is introduced, <laughs> and he's, like, standing in fog. I, <laughs> we we need just... I just need a quick minute to talk about Goose, really. Um, Go off. He He's wearing boots. He's wearing yellow waders. <laughs> mm-hmm. He doesn't really have shoulders exactly, but the waders stay on. <laughs> he is... <laughs> he's a seal guy. When we first see him, he is smiling. He is leading a walrus cow <laughs> with bundles of, like, seaweed grass strapped to its back. He uh, presumably lives on these, like, weird salt flats that populate <laughs> much of Quietus. When Prince Robot's ship lands, he has to squint and cover his eyes with his paw. Mm-hmm. He tells he... Prince Robot that Mr. Heist only likes lady folk who bring <laughs> yes. him alcohol. He asks he asks if Prince Robot is Lady Folk. <laughs> the way he gestures to the fact that Heist is in the old lighthouse with like his open palm and nice smile. <laughs> he is such a nice person and I just love him very much. Yes, he is uh really the character who should be named Sweet Boy, and I can't wait till you see him with his halberd. Uh more on that later. <laughs> Anyways, it was it was to go back to Fiona Staples's art. It was interesting to me to see how sketchy it was at the start and how much like not cleaner it gets, but yeah, it was just she, like if you look at number 1 and then compare it to like what issue am I looking at here? Probably number 10 or 11. 11, yeah. Just the like how jagged and angular some of the faces are, how much like I I guess I don't really have the vocabulary for it other than messy, but not because it's like careless, just because it's like the style she's using seems to be a lot like looser and and more sketchy, especially I'm looking at like the lines around like Alana's jaw um, or or like her eyes, things like that. Yeah. And then just to like compare with how how much like smoother and sleeker everything feels um in the later issues like it's clear it's clear that like she's she came in good and has like gotten better 
and whether that's in terms of like being able to produce more polished art more quickly versus like I'm sure she's cap she was capable of like pretty much anything she does later on at the start and it was it was probably like a timing thing but the ability to produce like a full issue of the quality that she puts out on a monthly basis is like pretty incredible yeah it i've i read that she starts with sort of like thumbnail sketches and then sort of draws over those in a way like not tracing over them but like sort of uses those as references for like her digital drawings and so i think early on like you sort of see that a little more and then like her sense of like figures and even like drawing faces like her faces just look better in subsequent issues Mm -hmm. um like i think i think it's just like a matter of confidence like because i mean i'm totally guessing here because neither of us are artists (laughs) but like it seems like i feel like adding like lines and stuff is something maybe you would do when you don't feel like a hundred percent about the sort of form of it yeah and so like you're just sort of like well like maybe it's sort of like this or maybe the line is sort of like this and then like cleaner lines to me would indicate like more confidence in like your drawings and right. the way you're mapping at your figures she also uses a lot of like photo reference which is something that tony harris does as well which i thought was interesting yeah i it's very like it's very different though like i i would never yes, call definitely. her art photorealistic in the same way that tony harris's is right definitely not yeah it's more of a pose thing and like in the same way that like i think we talked in one of the x market episodes about like Tony Harris, like, drawing hands and expressions yeah, and, like, those, yeah. like, little movements that people do. Like, I think you see that in her work. Yeah. Um, another thing it really reminded me of was, if you ever played the Banner Saga? No. It's, like, this, like, RPG about, it's sort of, like, Viking-inspired. But if you just Google it and look at the art, you'll see what I mean. Uh, and also, like, I think Banner Saga, they say, is inspired by Ralph Bakshi, which I can also kind of see. Yep. Okay. Well, then, I think that that will uh, bring us to the conclusion of our episode. Um, I forget how to do this. We haven't (laughs) recorded an episode in a little while. Well, let me uh, just take us out with this. The controversial cover of the comics' first issue was referenced in the Meemaw materialization, the February 4th, 2016 episode of the American TV sitcom, The Big Bang Big Bang Theory. I knew from the title, the Meemaw materialization. <laughs> like, go screw you doyles. Um, uh, but yes, please remember to uh, give us all the proper reviews, um, innovate, and procreate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called. Um, you know, I've get, heard five-star reviews are very good. Yeah, get on there and say... It's good, but it doesn't have to be so happy about how good it is. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Other than that, do you have anything to add, David? Uh, we will be discussing uh, next episode. The next 18 issues, 19 to 36. Yes, 19 to 36. I can do that math very quickly yeah, because it. I'm quite smart. I can do it because of Kumon. Thanks, Kumon. Thanks, Mom. You were right. It, I've just realized that you could kind of call that logo Kumon face. Yeah. apparently the face inside is the thinking face and it represents the faces of children who learn think and grow within definitely represented my face while i was doing kumon i can tell you that kumon face (laughs) we 
will see you all next time. Goodbye. Well, well hold on, oh, but oh, until right. then. But yes, until then, to, to be, be continued. continued. I can't wait to see if any of those sync up. <laughs>